We'll hear argument first this morning in number 905721, Purvis Tyrone Payne versus Tennessee. Mr. Lathram. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the most prejudicial conduct in which the prosecution engaged in this case involved what I believe to be the least controversial part of Booth versus Maryland. I refer to Booth's condemnation of survivor opinion about the, the sentence that a capital defendant should re receive. And I refer, in the context of this case, to the prosecutor's concluding remarks in his closing argument during the uh, sentencing trial. It, in the course of that, the prosecutor, in effect, demanded that the jury impose the death sentence in order to satisfy the anticipated desire of young Nicholas Christopher for Payne's execution. It is true, of course, that in this case, no witness actually took the stand and testified that they wanted Payne executed. But what happened here was much worse than that, I respectfully submit. And along that line, I think it would be a terrible mistake if we were to allow the state to avoid the consequences of calling a witness who would express such opinion by simply allowing the prosecutor to take the stand and testify for the witness. In this particular case, the prosecutor, serving as the surrogate for young Nicholas Christopher, a young youngster for whom this jury undoubtedly had the most heartfelt and deepest sympathy, serving as the representative of the state, did three improper things. He first of all demanded Payne's execution uh, because, uh, for, Nick, for young Nicholas's sake. Secondly, he suggested to the, to the jury that this was a permissible basis for executing an offender. And thirdly, he engaged in a form of psychological intimidation of the worst kind. He are, you, are, you are you suggesting, Mr. Latham, that uh, uh, the jury's feeling of sympathy or uh, perhaps outrage uh, at the crime and uh, the, what it's left the victims with is, is not a permissible factor at all? Oh, not at all, Your Honor. Uh, certainly the jury is going to have the most heartfelt sympathy for this youngster and, and should. I mean, and, and outrage, presumably, if, if the facts are proven against the defendant. Certainly, Your Honor. I, I think that they would definitely have outrage, and at this point they had already convicted him, so certainly... They have outrage, but <clears throat> do you say they may not take uh, that, that into account in deciding the penalty? Uh, no, Your Honor, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, I think that they, they certainly would take that into account and are entitled to. What we say is the error here. It would have been wrong, for example, Your Honor, for the grandmother to take the stand and actually testify I, to, the, to the opinion, I would like to see Purvis Payne uh, executed. By the same token, we think that the prosecutor cannot get up and, and start off his argument to the jury and say, uh, at the very conclusion, there is one thing, however, you can do for young Nicholas Christopher, and then go on to say that, that the little boy, when he grows up, is going to demand a particular type of justice. He's going to know, want to know what type of justice was done in this case. Just as it would be wrong to call a witness to the stand and say, I think that uh, the defendant should be executed, by the same token, I respectfully submit that it's uh, even worse, uh, under the particular circumstances of this case, to have the prosecutor testify for the little boy. So suppose now, a juror said in the jury room, uh, you know, someday I might meet this young man, five, young infant, five, ten years down the road, and I, I'm very concerned about what kind of justice is done, and I think uh, we should impose a death penalty. Would that be grounds for mistrial? Well, Your Honor, uh, if the jurors said that in the jury room, 
Your Honor, I don't think so, because I don't think we can impeach the verdict. I don't think we'd be able to. Well, let's, let's take the hypothetical. Let's assume that uh, uh, we have this testimony in a state where you can impeach the verdict. Is that improper conduct for the jury? I don't think the jury should consider it, but I don't think that would, it would raise a problem for this reason. The juror is thinking it uh, on his own. In this case, we have the representative of the state telling the jury that they may take this into account and actually execute this man for this impermissible reason. Well, if, if jurors can and will and do take certain matters of elementary justice into account, it seems to me proper that uh, prosecutors be able to argue about it under uh, the supervision of the court, uh, subject to the rebuttal by the defense counsel, and that it's just only realistic to allow this, this sort of argument. Your Honor, I, I think that we must uh, presume that the jury is going to follow its instructions, and there's nothing in that the jury is told that it is supposed to apply the collective conscience of the 12 of them, uh, and, and they're to base that collective uh, judgment on the basis of the evidence and on the basis of the law. Well, and, and, I, and I, I submit that a juror could say, I'm concerned about what would happen if I would meet this young man or members of his family five, ten years down the line, I think that's an appropriate measure of the kind of justice that we hand out because we have to look at things in the long term. It seems to me that's perfectly appropriate. Your Honor, it, um, I would respectfully uh, disagree, Your Honor, and, and perhaps I can get my point across by asking ourselves this uh, rhetorical question. What if the, a survivor in a particular case did not want the defendant uh, executed for religious reasons or, or whatever? In that particular case, Your Honor, I, I don't think that an otherwise heinous murderer would be uh, considered to be less blameworthy or less deserving of uh, the death penalty just because the victim's survivor uh, felt contrary to the way most uh, survivors would feel. I, it's I, funny you should mention that. I, I was about to ask you, uh, what, if, what if the defense in a, in a, in a trial uh, wants to put on the, uh, the mother of the victim uh, to testify, you know, I've suffered more loss than, than anyone in this case, and, and I hope you won't put this uh, poor person to death. I have forgiven him, and I, I hope you will do the same. Must, must that be excluded? Yes, Your Honor, I think it must be excluded. Right. I, think, I, I do believe that, Your Honor. I think the trial court would uh, have to exclude that evidence. I think that... Uh, I, I thought any mitigating evidence... This is mitigating evidence offered by the defense. Your Honor, to me, I, I would respectfully submit that this is an arbitrary variable that uh, I, I can't imagine anything more arbitrary than to allow uh, an offender's fate to depend upon the opinion of the survivor. Uh, I, I think that the, the mere fortuity that a survivor uh, wants, for, for religious or whatever reasons, wants the uh, victim to be, uh, excuse me, the defendant to be spared, injects a completely arbitrary factor into the, the sentencing determination. Well, how, how about his fate depending on the fact that he, he had an unhappy childhood? Your Honor, I think that, that certainly, this, as this Court has held, uh, I, I certainly think that that constitutes mitigating evidence because that is something that the jury can take into account when it assesses uh, his character. His character is one of the things that the jury can assess in determining whether or not he should live or die. But the mere fortuity that, that a victim survivor uh, feels one way or the other about whether the defendant should uh, be executed, uh, I respectfully submit. First, let, let's look at it in terms of retribution, because retribution is a valid penological objective. Let's ask ourselves this question. Let's assume that we have a situation where the victim's survivor uh, does not want the defendant executed. 
with society's interest in retribution, which, after all, is a punishment for an injury to society as a whole, be any less diminished? I would think not. I would think that society's interest in retribution is just as strong even if uh, one of the survivors comes in and says, uh, I'm a very religious person and I don't believe in the death penalty and I don't want this man. Well, I don't know. You know, one of, one of the purposes of, of retribution was to prevent people from taking law into their own hands. And you, you, you go all the way back and uh, uh, the state's punishment uh, simply substitutes for what used to be called vergeld where the, uh, the person doing the injury would pay money to the family of the person harmed and things of that sort. Uh, what, the, what the family of the person harmed uh, thinks about the matter on that theory would be very important. Certainly one of the purposes is to prevent people from taking justice into their own hands, saying the state will, will avenge you. You need not avenge yourselves. And if, if the person comes forward and says, I don't want to be avenged, is, is that totally irrelevant? Uh, I think it is, Your Honor, because, again, I think retribution is a punishment for an injury to society as a whole. And I think that uh, once society dis determines that particular conduct is so heinous that it uh, makes someone death eligible, that the defendant should not be allowed to escape execution simply because of the mere fortuity that there is a relative out there that, that some defense lawyer can find who will come in and say, well, maybe I don't really want him dead after all. Uh, to me, that in, uh, injects uh, an arbitrary factor in, into the whole sentencing uh, process that I think the eight... What was the third thing the uh, prosecutor did that you object to? Your Honor, I, I uh, characterized it in, as, a, uh, as the worst form of psychological intimidation. Yes. What he did is he painted a... Uh, uh, of course, he didn't need to paint a, a sympathetic uh, picture of this vic uh, little boy because one cannot imagine... Uh, a, a more sympathetic uh, victim. But this, 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 hasn't got, this one hasn't got anything to do with Booth, has it? Uh, yes, Your Honor. I think it does for this reason. Uh, Booth condemns survivor opinions about whether or not a defendant should be executed. And uh, while Booth dealt with a case where the, the, uh, vic the survivors actually came in and testified or testified through the, uh, the VIS statement, uh, here, I would respectfully submit that we have something that's the equivalent of, and indeed much worse than, than well, such testimony. I don't know that the prosecutor didn't say, uh, say I know that uh, this son uh, wants him executed. He didn't say that. Your Honor, I think that that's... Well, he, all, he did, all he suggested to the jury is uh, take into consideration the impact that, this, that the father's death has, uh, has had and will have on the son. Your Honor, I... I uh, what, what he, if I may respond by Go ahead. referring to what he said, he said, but there is, this is the very end of his, his concluding remarks, and that's, no. that's significant here because it must be recalled that the other prosecutor, in the, at the very end of her rebuttal, picked up the butcher knife and went over and stabbed the diagram of the little boy, uh, which shows, I respectfully submit, that the intent here was to inject as much prejudice into this uh, sentencing trial as possible. But what he did here is at the very close he said, but there is something you can do for Nicholas. Somewhere down the road, Nicholas is going to grow up, hopefully, and then he goes on to say he is going to want to know what type of justice was done. And he certainly, I respectfully submit, was not suggesting to the jury that they go back to the jury room and think seriously about imposing a life sentence. Well, I, I, I agree with you that uh, opinion testimony is, 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 a, is a troubling issue. I, I just think that 
Here you can interpret this as Nicholas being a surrogate for the whole community. I, I, I have problems with your interpretation of it. In fact, when, when you began and said that this was the worst, uh, that there was a, a, a critical item of testimony here, I had two or three other candidates that I would have picked out of this record. And, uh, I have some difficulty with this argument. Well, Your Honor, I, uh, I, there are some other things I, I certainly want to talk about. But Mr. Lathram, I, I'm just wondering if that statement that Nicholas is going to want to know what type of justice was done isn't the most natural response in the world. Do you think that uh, any juror would not know that a survivor someday is going to wonder what happened to the perpetrator of the crime? I mean, this isn't telling the jurors something they don't know. I, I find it hard to, to see how that could, if that is the most prejudicial thing that happened, Your Honor, I'm wondering if there was indeed any prejudice. Your Honor, I would like to think that when a juror brought this up during the course of deliberations, that the other jurors would say, we're supposed to decide whether this man lives or dies on the basis of the evidence in the case and the instructions given to us from the court. Was there and an it, objection made? No, at the time that this came in, and uh, yet you want us to rule now as a matter of constitutional law that a new sentencing hearing must be given. Your Honor, Payne's counsel at, at, um, in, in the two state proceedings did not object to this. Um, it just however, seems to me it's exactly the kind of thing that if there were any question about it, that if an objection were made at the time, the trial judge could make some kind of statement to the jury and tell them to disregard any opinion testimony, if that's what the state law required. But to come back later and say there's some constitutional violation strikes me as Well, Your Honor, um, strange. excuse me, Your Honor, state law did not require that. State law allowed this to be raised on appeal, and this federal issue was indeed decided uh, by the Tennessee Supreme Court. Therefore, I think that, that what we have now on the books is a, a Tennessee decision, which will be precedent or other offenders in Tennessee, so therefore I don't think that the failure to object would prevent this court from, from dealing with it. Um, Do you think it, the prosecutor would have been barred from just saying, consider the impact of uh, this death on the son? Not at all. Uh, I don't th you don't I, think that would be barred by Booth? No, sir, I do not think that would be barred by uh, Booth. <clears throat> but you, the way you interpret it, you think Booth does bar it? I think Booth bars what this prosecutor did, but doesn't bar the, the, the hypothetical statement that you're... Is a prosecutor uh, forbidden any po poetic license at all in his argument? I mean, certainly, typically, you're arguing a case to a jury. You're, you're going to use some analogies and some uh, e examples. Uh, uh, are, are you saying that he, he simply may never leave the cold record, even, even in his argument? No, no, Your Honor, I'm not. What, what we're saying here is that this prosecutor told this jury they could do something that this court has never even intimated, much less held, could be done. This prosecutor told the jury that, ladies and gentlemen, you may execute this man because this little boy someday is going to grow up and wants you to have executed him. That's, uh, that is, in effect, what he... Well, but th that really is a rather strained construction. He, uh, he, it seems to me, if you, if you look at what we have of the record here in the opinion of the Supreme Court of Tennessee, he dealt with the facts. And in a closing argument, and any lawyer is going to get into a few rhapsodies of sort. That, that's the way people argue cases to juries. Your Honor, I think that the, the, the two key statements here are, first of all, he said, but there is something you can do for Nicholas. And again, he, then he goes on, and we're one, now what is that something? 
Then he goes on to say how Nicholas is going to grow up, and he says he's going to want to know what type of justice was done. He doesn't say he's going to want to know whether justice was done. He's going to want to know whether or not you executed this man. And, and here's this jury. Imagine, I can't imagine anything more difficult than being on a jury like this and already knowing what has happened to this poor youngster who saw his mother killed, who saw his sister killed, who uh, was, all the medical problems were brought, for, uh, were brought out in front of the jury. Here's this juror, jury thinking, well, what, you know, that's, that's a good point. The representative of the state has now told me that this is a reason that I may execute someone in the state of Tennessee. May I ask what, you a question here, Mr. Latham? Do you read the Tennessee Supreme Court opinion as holding that there was or was not a Booth violation? It's a little ambiguous to me. They may have said there's no Booth violation here at all. The um, Tennessee Supreme Court opinion is ambiguous, I think, Your Honor. So if you found no Booth violation, we really wouldn't have to reach the question of whether to overrule Booth, would we? I think what the court held was that there may have been a Booth violation. Uh, In fact, I I think that the court... Held, well, the court held that the grandmother's testimony was technically irrelevant under Booth. They said it was irrelevant, but they, I'm not sure they said it was a violation of Booth. It's, it's, it's difficult to tell. It's, it's within the context of a paragraph. It could have been irrelevant as a matter of state law, I suppose. It, it's, it's possible that that could have been the case. Yeah. Um, but then, as far as the, um, the argument, uh, Your Honor, I, I think what the court said is uh, there, there may have been a Booth violation here, but we believe it was harmless error. I, th- I think that's, th- again, the opinion is not really a, a model of, of, of clarity. Mr. Latham, suppose he hadn't referred specifically to the, to the child, but it just said, uh, you know, the citizens of this community, uh, when they see this verdict come down, they're going to ask whether justice has been done. They've seen one of their members brutally murdered, a child orphaned. Uh, they're going to want to know what, what quality of justice you've meted out on behalf of the community. They're, and they, you know, they... Uh, they, they, they want severe justice. Is, is that all right? I think that would be a perfectly permissible argument, Your Honor. But I see a marked distinction between that... Between and what, that and referring to the, to the child. Why yes, Your Honor, ask? because what they're asking... To, uh, they're, I, I can't think of... Again, I, I know I'm being somewhat repetitious, but to me there's nothing more arbitrary than to allow a person's fate to, to depend upon the opinion of a single survivor. Why isn't it arbitrary to have it depend on the, on the opinion of the community or my perception of the opinion of the community? Because I think that when the jury uh, applies its collective uh, judgment, uh, and it serves as the conscience of the entire community. And I think prosecutors often tell the jury, you are the conscience of the community. Oh, but that gets back to my point on retribution. Retribution is something for society, not for a particular individual. Oh, but no, I, I mean, I may be a very kindly person and, and, and opposed to capital punishment if it were left up to me, but I am told by the prosecutor, you're, you're not sitting to uh, give vent to your own uh, feelings. You, you are supposed to express what you think is the moral outrage of the community. And this community uh, is a, uh, a hard-hat community, and uh, we, uh, yeah, uh, you should consider whether they would want this person executed. Now, that, that kind of argument's okay. I don't know why that isn't just as um, arbitrary as you put it. This court, Your, Your Honor, and I, I think this will respond to that. This court has, I, I, I think, in Booth, in the majority opinion, um, and, and again, I'm separating this survivor opinion away from the victim impact, which I'm going to come to in just a minute, but this court has never intimated, and, and in fact, all the state court's decisions, I believe, and this is, I think, brought out in the Huertas argument, uh, have indicated that it's improper for a survivor to express an opinion. And if I'm not mistaken, and, and I could be because I don't know the Huertas record uh, as well as perhaps I should, but I think that went back to Ohio 
on a, a state law determination that it, the expressions of opinions like this are impermissible. Now, that's Ohio state law, and we're dealing with the Eighth Amendment. I agree. How many states uh, do, do, do permit it to come in? Frankly, I find it uh, extraordinary to, to, to have it admitted, but that's quite separate from the question of whether it's constitutional if a state wants to do that. How many states do do it, do you know? No, no you're right. I would, uh, and I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I would venture to say that no state does, but I, but I don't have anything to back me up on that. I just can't imagine uh, uh, any state allowing it, and I do think it rises to an Eighth Amendment violation because, again, the best way to, to answer it is to, is to focus on uh, what would happen if the victim survivor said, I don't want him killed. To me, the guy is just as heinous, and the need for retribution is just as great notwithstanding the fact that a defense lawyer is able to go out and find one witness who can come in and say, well, gosh, I, you know, I have some qualms about the death penalty. Do you think this court would, would uh, permit the exclusion of, uh, of testimony that uh, the survivors do not want him killed? Absolutely. We've said all mitigating evidence has to come in. I think that what the court said, uh, I, I respectfully submit that, that the, what the court said in Lockett was that all relevant mitigating evidence must come in. I don't think the court has ever said that anything a defense lawyer can dream up as, as uh, mitigating is, is allowed to come into evidence. I think that uh, you have got to, uh, there's got, in order for evidence to be, to be relevant, uh, of course, um, it must assist the jury in deciding one of the issues placed before it. And one of the, the, the issue here uh, at, at the selection stage is whether or not a defendant deserves to die. And it seems to me that for the jury to decide this unbelievably uh, pressing, important, emotional question on the basis of whether a victim happens to think he should die or not, uh, injects uh, the kind of arbitrariness into the, de the decision that this court has frowned upon since uh, 1972. Well, now, counsel, what else uh, in this case uh, uh, is, uh, is arguably barred by uh, Booth? Your Honor, uh, I would like to now turn to the grandmother's testimony and the arguments based on, on the grandmother's testimony. Uh, we were asked to brief the, the question of whether Booth should be overruled, and, and we've done that. We, uh, we tried to answer the questions raised by the dissenting opinions, and uh, those questions, uh, those opinions raised very tough questions. Um, we did the best we could. I, I think our reply brief did a better job than our first brief. Let, let me preface my remarks by saying that I would never come into this court and endorse a position that would invalidate a statute that enhances punishment on the basis of harm. Uh, I, I believe very strongly, and I know this court has said this, that legislatures have very substantial leeway in our form of government to make these kinds of hard choices. And in fact, I, I think that anything that encourages more legislative accountability is to be applauded. And I certainly uh, recognize that this court does not sit as a legislature to review and correct unwise policy decisions. My concern with overruling Booth can best be summarized uh, this way. And what, what I've tried to do is, is reconcile Booth with those um, punishment enhancement statutes. And that's what we tried to do in our reply brief. And I, and I think I can express my concern best by focusing on two hypotheticals. Uh, let's take the air piracy statute. And let's first take this situation. Hijacking number one, a death results. Hijacking number two, because of a mere fortuity, there is no death that results. I think Booth would agree that, that the statute, because that is the air piracy statute, is valid. And I certainly would accept that because, after all, we have a determination by society that the crime may be aggravated because of the harm, even though the hijacker didn't intend the harm and the hijacker himself was not the one directly responsible for it. Again, that is a valid exercise of retribution by our National Legislature Congress. Uh, now, let's, go, let, let's compare that with this hypothetical. 
Let's take, again, two hijackings, and let's assume that in both a death results. But let's assume that in hijacking number one, the victim who dies is a person beloved by society and leaves behind several aggrieved survivors. Let's assume that in um, example number two, the uh, victim who dies is, if I may use the word, a, repro a reprobate who's not, who doesn't leave behind any aggrieved survivors at all. My concern with overruling Booth is raised by this question. Is hijacker number two really less blameworthy? Is he really less deserving of death than hijacker number one simply because the uh, victim was a reprobate who left no aggrieved survivors? Uh, perhaps that's a policy question, and that's, that's the issue, isn't it? That's, that's what the court has to decide. Is this something that for the legislatures to decide, or does this introduce an arbitrary variable into the sentencing determination? Why isn't, uh, it, why isn't it arbitrary whether the death occurs? I mean, hijacker number one uh, shoots off a, a pistol to scare the people. Uh, uh, unfortunately for him, uh, the bullet ricochets and kills someone. Hijacker number two does the same thing. The bullet doesn't ricochet and kill anybody. As far as moral blameworthiness is concerned, it's exactly the same, isn't it? it One has caused more harm than the other, and we punish him more severely. It's exactly the same, except that in that situation, Your Honor, society, working through the, the uh, Congress, has made a valid, non-arbitrary classification of death eligibility. Uh, we're not trying to... What's, what's wrong with the second example, I respectfully submit, is that we're letting the decision on whether or not to impose death depend upon non-specific variables that uh, the, the legislature has not g given any definition well, but to. but wait a minute. You're, you're letting the jury in both cases decide whether or not to impose death. You're, you're allowing the jury in either case to say, well, in our opinion, he shouldn't get death anyway. Th that, that's correct, Your Honor. Well, uh, then how can you pretend that the legislature has set some rigorous, uh, rigorous penalty that, uh, that, that mathematically follows? Well, in the, in, the, in the first hypothetical, all the, all the jury is called upon to do is, is first determine whether a death occurred. Usually that's going to be stipulated or that there won't be any dispute about that. The jury doesn't go along, doesn't after that, then decide, well, I think death should be uh, imposed because the, uh, the victim who was killed in this case happens to be a person who was, was well-loved by his family members. Uh, at they least can take into account any mitigating circumstance and decide not to impose death on the basis of any mitigating circumstance that appeals to them. Your Honor, it's, uh, it's, it's inconceivable to me, and, and perhaps I, maybe it, it should be conceivable, but it's inconceivable to me that a defense lawyer could come in and say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you've got to consider all mitigating evidence. And one piece of mitigating evidence that I want to offer is this. The man that died in this hijacking, even though my client didn't know him at all, was a reprobate who used to cheat on his income taxes and who used to cheat on his wife and was basically no good and wasn't loved by, by any family members. If, if it's going to be open season where we're going to allow defense lawyers to do that type of thing, then I respectfully submit, Your Honor, we're going to be injecting all kinds of arbitrary variables into the sentencing process that the Eighth Amendment uh, prohibits. Mr. Latham, let me make two suggestions and get your responses to them. The first is that... Uh, whether or not the person is a saint or a reprobate and whether or not the jury is told about it uh, really isn't any more, doesn't inject anything more arbitrary uh, than the fortuity of death resulting or not resulting, uh, it seems to me. He, uh, he, he performs certain dangerous acts. He realizes that they may cause death. By the same token, uh, he realizes that if he performs them, uh, the, the, the victim may be a saint. In each case, it seems to me that it's fortuitous. 
The second suggestion is this. Isn't the real problem with getting into the, uh, or at least with the, with the prosecutions uh, uh, taking the affirmative in getting into the character of the victim, that it implies that society is valuing victims differently? Isn't the, isn't the real problem one, almost one, a kind of uh, maybe a, a second-tier equality before the law argument that society is placing different values on their victims, on, on victims? I think that's correct, Your Honor, and I think that uh, that is the point that we, uh, we made in the first part of our reply brief in this case. I think that uh, when, when society, speaking through its legislature, has a valid governmental interest for making a classification, whether based on harm or based on victim status, such as the peace officer, it's not saying that one uh, member of society is worth more than another. All it's saying is, is that we have a legitimate governmental interest in extending protection to peace officers or whatever. But when we allow... Is that an Eighth Amendment concern? Yes, Your Honor, I think it is because it injects, uh, again, an arbitrary factor that I think uh, uh, would, would run afoul of uh, Furman. And the, the valuation itself is, is an arbitrary factor because it is insupportable. Well, whether, uh, when is, we, is, is that the argument? Yes, sir, it's the non-specificity of whether or not somebody has led an exemplary life or a non-exemplary life, or has led uh, a good, is a good person or a, a bad person, or left behind aggrieved survivors or not aggrieved survivors. Thank you, Mr. Latham. Uh, General Burson, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Booth v. Maryland and South Carolina v. Gaithers were wrongly decided in that they were founded on the flawed propositions that victim impact information may be unrelated to any legitimate sentencing consideration that its inherently emotional appeal will shift the focus of the senator to irrelevant factors, and that in so shifting the focus of the senator, it will result in the arbitrary imposition of the sentence. It's the state's position that the full extent of harm done is relevant to the personal responsibility and moral guilt of the defendant, that some individual characterization of the victim is necessary to enable the senator to make a decision, a particularized decision, and a moral decision uh, in the sentencing process. Third, it's relevant to the penological objective of retribution. Given its probative value, it can hardly be said that it inherently invites an arbitrary sentencing decision. Indeed, its inclusion suggests a more reliable decision. For these reasons, this information should not be Precluded as an Eighth Amendment proposition on a blanket basis. Mr. Burson, or General Burson, nothing, nothing you've said uh, goes to uh, uh, comments uh, concerning the views of the victim's family as to what penalty should be imposed. What you've said all goes to how many children were left, uh, how much they missed their father, and so forth. Correct. But not to what penalty the father wants imposed. Yes. You. It's, it's, what, uh, first what is of all, the relevance of that? It's, it's our position that, as has been discussed, that is not present in this case. But in response to your question, we would say that as an Eighth Amendment proposition, it's relevant to the penological principle of retribution, as was suggested. This should come as no great surprise to the uh, jury that uh, uh, the survivors would... Uh, would feel this way. Now, each state, again, we emphasize as an Eighth Amendment proposition, 
We don't think the basis is there to exclude it. Each state, in making its policy decisions and weighing whether it should come in or not, that should be left to them. In Georgia... May I interrupt you at that point? Because taking the other side of the coin, as Justice Scalia asked your adversary earlier, if you get survivor opinion that the death penalty should not be imposed, and if you decide that's relevant, then it's relevant mitigating evidence, and it must come in under Lockett. Is that your view? No, sir. Uh, under Lockett, there are restrictions to the mitigating evidence. The mitigating evidence must relate to the character of the victim, the record, or the circumstances of the crime. Uh, that's our point. What, this, what evidence seems to have to comport to is the Furman line of cases, which narrows the jury discretion, the Lockett line, so which just, says just anything... Just to make sure I understand. Your point is that it's permissible for the prosecutor to put this kind of evidence in, but not for the defendant. No, I didn't understand that to be your question. I would suggest that that then runs into uh, perhaps a Gardner-type problem, uh, that if the prosecution opens the door by putting it in, uh, that, uh, that but then the... the but it's uh, entirely the election of the prosecutor whether this kind of evidence can be received. I think that is a decision that would have to be made on a state-by-state basis. Our but position the state is could not decide as a matter of its own law that we will receive such evidence from the prosecutor and exclude it from the defendant. The state well, could do that, I understand you. They have to make that decision within the... Well, I'm assuming that's process. the decision they make. Well, but they, they then... There would be no constitutional way. objection to that decision, in your view. No, I didn't say that. I said that as an... Well, what would be the process. constitutional objection, then? Due process, Gardner v. Florida, may that's well be the objection. So then you're saying if a state adopts a rule that it will receive this evidence from the prosecutor, due process requires it must also receive it from the defendant. I think that would be a So the defendant then in, in such a state would have the right to put on survivors who will testify they do not think the death penalty should be imposed. I think that that's would be your where, view. Where, 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 where that takes me. And, in fact, Georgia, in the Romine case, uh, did allow that. In fact, reverse on the fact that uh, the trial judge didn't let, uh, uh, let the defense put it on as mitigating evidence. Mr. Uh, Attorney General, yes, what happened to the old-time theory that the crime was against the state and not the individual? Well, I think at the very heart of our proposition... has Yes, sir. no, sir. I think at the very heart of our proposition is that we are looking at societal harm. We are not just talking about the harm to the individual. I think... Well, the other question was, the record in this case shows that the jury was shown pictures of the dead bodies, the brutal blood all over the place, and everything that could be photographed was shown to the jury and uh, practically no defense. What in the world did you need any more evidence for? Well, I think the point is it was relevant, it was probative, and um, the trial judge made what that decision. What more did you need? Well, I think that... Can you imagine any jury not convicted? I think that they needed a, at least a characterization of the victim as a unique human being other than just as a corpse. And that's all I think the... Uh, what, what was depicted in what you you're mean, speaking You mean you needed more than a bloody body? Your Honor, um, I would respectfully say that the state was entitled to put on more than a bloody body. Yes, sir. Do you think that... Oh, can speak for the state. This is the state of Tennessee. Right? With all due respect, I don't think the child well, is speaking well, for the state. Well, then the title says Tennessee versus so-and-so, so-and-so against Tennessee, doesn't it? Yes, sir. And it's a Tennessee problem, and it's not the child's problem. 
The child is a member of the Tennessee Society. Will any other member come in and talk? I think that that would probably be left up to the trial judge and to the uh, relationship of the... No, the street and say, I don't think this man should go, I think he should be killed. You can't do that, can you? I think that that would be, uh, again, guided by our concepts of fundamental fairness under the Due Process Clause. Yes, you want to talk about... You really want to talk about fairness? Yes, sir. General, uh, I, I take it you uh, think that uh, unless Booth is overruled, uh, you're going to lose this case? Well, Your Honor, we... Because we, uh, you, you think that uh, this victim impact evidence uh, 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 would not pass muster under Booth? Uh, the answer is no, because we think that if you do not overrule Booth, uh, that this was, as the a Supreme, Court just, Supreme Court found harmless error beyond a reasonable doubt. Oh, I see. But we do suggest that the information but you that say, came in... Uh, but, but you say it was error under Booth. We say that Booth... Whether harmless or not, it was error. Yes, that Booth is broad enough to cover this information, with the exception of our exception about the, uh, about the, uh, uh, the statements of the prosecutors about justice being done. Uh, but the rest, we say, would be covered uh, by the Booth and Gaither's uh, principles. Thanks. At, at the core of, and, and this goes to our point about the reliability of the decision, it seems that at the core of the court's focus on personal responsibility and moral guilt is the proposition that the ultimate choice the jury must make between life and death is a profoundly moral one. That morality is given expression as a constitutional principle through the Eighth Amendment. Its meaning at any given time must derived from the prevailing standards of decency in the society. Our society, through its state and national legislative bodies, is clear in its message. Decency and morality in the administration of justice insist on relevant victim impact information in the sentencing process. General Burson, let me just ask one other question similar to the other one I asked you about. Do you also take the position that the defendant should be able to put in evidence that the victim was an unworthy person? As an Eighth Amendment proposition, we are not suggesting that that is necessarily prohibited. Our point is that this is not precluded as an Eighth Amendment proposition and that what a state should be entitled to do is balance its particular legitimate policy interest against the introduction of this evidence. For instance, a state may well conclude that to allow a defendant to put on a, a negative societal impact evidence without the state opening it up, that that, in essence, would invite open season on victims, and that balancing that interest against the interest of fairness in the trial process, the state may well conclude no, we're not going to allow that. They could cure that with an instruction. But you would say that if the state puts on uh, evidence about the character of the victim, the witnesses could be cross-examined to test the credibility of that testimony. Yes. They could do that. But, the, but it's a one-way street on whether, who can open the door. The state can open the door with this evidence, but the defendant could not. I'm suggesting the state could make that choice. Right. You, you, were, you were saying then really flatly uh, in disagreement with what your opposing counsel 
said in, in response to a suggestion I made that it really is legitimate to value victims differently, uh, depending upon the, the circumstances of the lives that they have chosen to lead. What I am suggesting, and I think it is a significant uh, a difference, and yes, I do agree with counsel, but, but the point is different. I, I'm what, sorry, you agree with, with no, 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 I, I disagree because I don't think what we're asking to be done is the valuation of the worth and the sanctity of a human life. I think the clearest example is if we look, and I kind of hate to use this example, if we look at the president and we look at, um, at a homeless person, there is no doubt that the sanctity of their lives is equal and the society values them equally. For the purposes of our proposition, there further can be no doubt that the taking of the life of the president creates much greater societal harm than the taking of the life of the, uh, uh, of, of the homeless person. So it is in looking at that societal harm that we suggest is something that is legitimate for the jury to consider. Yes, but there you have a, a, your opponent argues that that's a distinction Congress has drawn, that you treat the harm to the president differently from other people, you can have a more serious penalty. But could you, would it be permissible for a statute to say that a father, uh, if the victim is the father of a family of four, the death penalty may be imposed, but if it was a single parent, it may not be imposed? Would that well, be a, uh, that be a constitutional statute? Well, speaking down as a, as a statutory aggravating factor, because I think there's a difference. Right, if you had an aggravating parents. factor that if you're a father of a family of four, that would make you eligible for the death penalty, but if you're a single parent, it, you're not, it, it would not. Oh, if the if victim, victim is a, is a uh, family, a father of a family of four, I, I think that that would depend in terms of defining an aggravator, whether that were sufficiently narrow to define the class and whether that was a, a sufficiently principled basis in well, which to uh, name, name an aggravator. Is there a principled basis for drawing that? There, there may well be. I think that would have to be expressed uh, and looked at uh, in each individual case, but there may well be uh, a societal difference in taking uh, the breadwinner of, of four children, and, and, and a state might end up defining that as an aggravating factor. There's nothing inherent in it that would prohibit it from being. I think you have to say that. I mean, surely if a jury can, if you're going to say the jury can do it, I think you have to say the legislature can do it. I think the principle, Justice Scalia, would be that if it is too broad so as not to actually narrow the class, the vagueness of it, but the example given is not very vague, and uh, I would say you have a fairly limited class of victims there. General Burson, do you think that it would be permissible for the state to have evidence introduced to show that the victim went to church every Sunday and never took a drink? I mean, well, is that the kind of evidence that you're arguing uh, uh, should be allowed? The, the type of evidence that uh, we're arguing for is as far as Again, there's the societal harm evidence, which may be embodied in a particular characteristic of the victim, but there's another, another reason we think it should come in, and that was pointed out by... You think Chief, that kind of evidence should come in? Well, as... Is that what depends the state on how wants far to do? it goes. It depends on how... What we are looking for is enough to flesh out that this was a unique living human being, as Chief Justice mentioned in Mills. Is there any limiting principle? Is there a limiting principle of foreseeability of the harm, for example? We would suggest no as far as uh, uh, the foreseeability. We have suggested that uh, the personal responsibility of the uh, defendant extends to, it goes to the full extent of his harm, and, and that is very much an objective 
factor. We've also suggested, however, that it's that is a to the extent that moral culpability uh, and that mental state is insisted on by the court that. Uh, a moral culpability as a mental state embraces more than subjective foreseeability. And the full extent of the harm includes, in your view, the personal characteristics of the victim. It may. For instance, in this case, uh, the fact that Sharice uh, uh, Christopher was a mother of two children, that the, the fact of two infant children, the fact that she was a mother and had two infant children, is a, an individual characteristic that does reflect the additional harm also to society. Well, the human characteristic. She was a nice mother. She, she uh, always took them to Sunday school. I think those human characteristics are more appropriately viewed as to whether they are needed to paint a basic picture of this unique human being. When they go to the point, when they go to the point of suggesting that her life is worth more in terms of the sanctity of life than the life of the defendant, then we think uh, you, have a, you have a problem. Lay, laying aside, that's where the line should be drawn. Laying aside for the moment the constitutional considerations, uh, just from the standpoint of your expertise as an attorney general and as a prosecutor, uh, would you recommend that every state in the union permit all of the evidence that was introduced in this record? Well, um, yes, because I think that uh, this was determined by the trial judge, uh, for, and, and, and we had uh, uh, arbitrariness review, proportionality review. Um, uh, there, so my concern is that um, prosecutors tend to go to the very limits of the, of the law. I don't know if you had the opportunity to read the record in Wertus versus Ohio, in which the uh, a grieved mother or a grandmother testified as to the appropriate penalty. And if we overrule Booth versus Gaithers, so we're going to have testimony that is of this very, very emotional and potentially prejudicial nature. We would suggest uh, in that regard we have our due process principles, uh, we have our appellate review principles, uh, uh, fundamental fairness, I think it was suggested. We've uh, had no, no case uh, that I recall in which we've set aside um, <clears throat> a death verdict for inflammatory, uh, inflammatory arguments by the prosecutor. We've, we've come close to that. We've said that there's a due process component. Well, I think that's just one of the points. Are we now creating a new, new standard uh, with Booth? I don't think this was the intention. Maybe it was, but in, in, in Booth and Gaither's, we've, we've created a new standard uh, in a, in, at a very low threshold for prosecutorial argument. I mean, we're here before where the serious contention is being made that those references to justice are constitutional error under, uh, under Booth and Gaither's. And we would suggest that it's up to the states, not, not as an Eighth Amendment proposition, but the states should, should, should determine uh, the degree to which that comes in and balance, uh, balance those interests as to these substantive factors. Incidentally, uh, just to, to make the record clear, I take it you don't defend uh, the, the stabbing of the diagram I'm not here to defend that. That's not an issue uh, we would suggest is, is before the court. When you say the evidence in the case, I'm assuming we're talking about all the evidence that's relevant uh, that was the meaning before of this question. case. May I just ask one last question? It seems to me your standard is whether the evidence would show that the victim was a unique living human being. I think those were your words. That seems to me to assume that some are unique and others are not. 
Well, I think this goes to, I think this, that, that is a very serious question because I think what Booth and Gaither suggest, contrary to what we've said that we have to have a particularized decision on, on the defendant, what they are suggesting is a generic victim, an abstract victim, an invisible victim no, at the sentencing. Victim, no, I suggest what the defendant knows about the victim may properly come into, into evidence. This is, we're, we're dealing entirely with evidence that the defendant did not know about. It was all unforeseen to the defendant. Well, that's I don't all think, Booth covers. I don't think in this case we are. I think well, that may be. Maybe that's why Booth doesn't apply here. Well, I think that Booth does apply. But, uh, uh, Your Honor, I don't think that's what the, if it wasn't foresee, If it wasn't foreseeable, we're saying, then we have to deal with a generic victim. And again, I think I mentioned before, uh, as, as Chief Justice Rehnquist pointed out in Mills, that unless we have a, a basic character sketch, something to let us know this is a, not a corpse but a unique living human being, the, how can you make, how can a jury make that, that moral judgment? Does not that assume that some human beings are not unique? No. It, what it assumes is that our present standard is a generic victim. Thank you, General Burson. Uh, General Thornburg, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, we urge overruling of Booth versus Maryland and South Carolina versus Gathers. We submit that there's nothing cruel or unusual about the jury's consideration of victim impact evidence in the sentencing stage. Booth's contrary view, however wise uh, or unwise it may be as a matter of social policy, is simply not required by the uh, Eighth Amendment to the Constitution. We urge the Court to adopt instead a rule which gives due weight to expressions by the Congress and the overwhelming majority of state legislatures that permit consideration of victim impact evidence in all cases. Victim impact evidence should be considered in capital cases to ensure not only that the defendant is held morally responsible for the victim's death, but to hold defendant accountable for the full extent of the harm caused by his or her criminal acts. We echo Justice Blackmun's observation in Furman that the misery occasioned to the victims, the families of the victims, and to the communities where the offenses took place are matters which perhaps deserve not to be entirely overlooked. Consideration of victim impact evidence as an aid in determining the full accountability of the murderer does not risk an arbitrary or capricious result, but is indeed rational and reasonable. Victim impact evidence is relevant to establishing the full range of retribution. Mr. Attorney General, is, do you take the view that it's a one-way street or a two-way street? Can the defendant introduce evidence that the victim was an unworthy person? I think that's a matter that has to be decided by legislative bodies or in a particular case. Uh, but you would take the view it's permissible to allow it by constitutionally a permissible constitutional matter, yes. to allow it for the prosecutor and deny it to the defendant? As a constitutional matter, yes. General Thornburg, what if the state legislature hasn't enacted anything uh, relating to victim impact evidence, but the prosecutor wants to introduce evidence about uh, the character of the deceased? This was a good church-going person who never told a lie and so forth and so on. Depending upon the delineation of aggravating and uh, minimizing uh, circumstances uh, that might well be admissible within the confines of the legislative definition. No, this my case, assumption is that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't relate directly to anything the legislature has said. I think that uh, our position is that in order for the jury to hold the defendant fully accountable 
for the extent of the harm that's been inflicted upon the victim, it's, uh, his or her family or their community, that that kind of evidence is, is properly received as a constitutional matter. There's nothing infirm under the Eighth Amendment about receiving that information. Well, then why wouldn't um, evidence as to the unsavory nature of the victim be relevant as far as the defendant's case? Is I, I'm suggesting that that, again, is a matter for state law, and there's well, nothing... I'm, I'm asking you, though, in the absence of state law, because I suspect in many of these situations, we don't have a directly relevant state law. We're going to have prosecutors and defense counsel out there wondering what to do and how far they can go. My own I'm sense... wondering what your theory is. My own sense is that the defense counsel should not be permitted to denigrate the value of the life that already is found to have been taken under circumstances justifying death sentence eligibility. That the uh, characteristics of the life that's been taken are admissible to give the jury the full picture of the nature and extent of the harm that's been caused by the Defendant's Act so that they can hold that defendant fully accountable to the full extent of the harm that's been done to the well, family, the community, and the like. your opinion testimony of a survivor as to the penalty? Opinion testimony, again, I don't think is a constitutional matter should be barred. Again, I'm not terribly sure that... Uh, if I were drafting the legislation that uh, provided for these kinds of situations, that that would be at the top of the list. But as a constitutional matter, I don't see any infirmity in having that opinion on either side presented. But the full extent, I mean, once a man is sentenced to death, what else can you do to him? Nothing. So you don't, the full extent doesn't help in this case, does it? Uh, Justice Marshall, what I'm trying to convey well, is a I'm sense... What I'm trying to convey is that you, this case, they showed everything necessary to bring in a death penalty. And then they added this on. We would suggest that in making the determination as to whether a death penalty eligible defendant is to in fact suffer the death penalty, it's important for the jury to have the full picture and of the harm that was caused by the act which took the life of the victim. And anything in addition you can think of? Not anything in addition you can think of, because a trial judge has and exercises well, the opportunity. Do you agree with me that there was enough there without that? The bloody pictures, etc.? I didn't try the case, so I wouldn't want to make that judgment, but I know a prosecutor well, you've tried wants other to. cases, haven't you? Yes, I have. Well, wouldn't you think that was enough? In this case, I think the prosecutor properly decided to uh, admit the evidence to sketch for the jury the full extent of the impact of the loss, to hold the defendant accountable for that. Overruling Booth. Do you agree? I do not think so. Well, why Booth? Because I think Booth uh, goes to great pains to presume harm from this evidence. The Tennessee court didn't. The Tennessee court uh, followed Booth. Didn't say it so. found it found it to be didn't, harmless error. It didn't not, say not, so. It found it to it, it found the admission of this evidence to be error under Booth, but found it to be right. harmless. That's right. And we're suggesting that its finding of error is error, and we're urging we this court to, to overrule this, it. We have to go this one step further and overrule Booth. Yes, we are. There's another factor I think that we have to deal with here, and, and legitimately there are concerns about particular cases where the risks posed by potential inflammatory or prejudicial evidence may be offered. But we're suggesting that those can be accommodated by the kinds of safety valves that exist in the conduct of the case 
Judges are used to making those decisions with respect to prejudicial evidence, and the appellate review process, which offers a chance for that judgment to be uh, clarified. But what we're suggesting is that it is inappropriate to have a constitutional rule per se, which excludes all of the evidence with respect to what the impact on the victim, the victim's family, and the victim's community was. We suggest also that this per se rule is really unworkable in practice because Mr. Some Attorney General, do you understand that per se rule to apply to matter that the defendant knew about? Or we only talk about matter the defendant could not have reasonably foreseen? Clearly that the highest case of culpability is on matters that the defendant knew about. But you don't understand Booth to exclude that evidence? No. Okay. But what we're saying is that in order to assess the full impact of the act that the defendant carried out, and to hold that defendant fully accountable, it's necessary to go beyond the ambit of simply what that defendant knew, and to take into account the actual impact so that the jury has the full picture. General Thornburg, do, do, you, do you agree with, uh, with uh, General Burson that, that there are really two different sorts of uh, victim impact evidence and that both can get in? I mean, one, one is really an aggravating, you know, this was a father of ten children who will miss him and uh, their, their lives will be harder because he's gone and, and therefore society is harmed. And the other one is uh, this, this was a, a poor reprobate, uh, never did a lick, lick of work in his life, but, uh, you know, a, a gentle soul, never harmed anybody, just, just to humanize the victim, not to show any greater harm to society. Let uh, me recast both, that. Both types be admissible in your view. Let, let me, if I might, Justice Scalia, recast that dichotomy because I think there's entirely too much focus upon the characteristics per se. Mm -hmm. But those characteristics have relevance only insofar as they reflect the actual harm that was done by the criminal act for which everyone agrees we must hold this defendant accountable. It's not the, the characteristics themselves but what has resulted from the death of that individual and a loss to the victim, the family, and the community. I think it would be uh, inadmissible, and no one supports the proposition that in these considerations uh, the uh, characteristics themselves should govern the determination. But insofar as they reflect the degree of the loss that was suffered by the criminal act carried out, that they are inadmissible. And you're are saying there is a difference between the two categories that Justice Scalia described. Well, I'm, I'm suggesting that in both categories, it's not the characteristics of the victim that But the second category doesn't show anything about harm. It just shows he was a real nice guy. Well, that could have been, the loss of that life could have been of great harm to uh, family, friends, community. No, but just testimony limited to the fine moral character of the victim. Well, real Not nice guys the are, are, the loss of real nice guys is something of importance to this community, to all the communities as well. Thank you, General Thornburg. The case is submitted.